This morning we're going to conclude a sermon series that we began several months ago entitled, The Prophets Speak. We've been looking at the minor prophets. They were only minor because the length of their books are shorter than the major prophets. But they weren't minor in what they did for God. And the minor prophets we've seen were sent by God to address the nation of Israel, the nation of Judah, to address the politicians and the priests who led the government and led the church of that day, to address the people and all of their carnality and crookedness and corruption. And what we've seen so far is that when a prophet came, he normally addressed a broad field that consisted of many. Well, today we're going to look at a prophet who only addresses one person. He doesn't come to the whole nation. He doesn't come to all the politicians. He doesn't come to any of the priests. He doesn't even speak to the people. Nathan the prophet is sent by God to speak to one man. And what he has to say is devastating. Nathan, thou art the man. 2 Samuel chapter 12. And the Lord sent Nathan unto David. And he came unto him and he told the king a story. A story of two men in one city, one which was rich, the other which was poor. The rich man had much. He had exceeding flocks and herds of all varieties of animals. His herds were in the hundreds, they were in the thousands. But the poor man, he had nothing, save one little pet lamb, which he had brought up and nourished, from birth, and it had grew up with him, and his family had grew up with the lamb. And that little lamb eat with his family and drank with his family, slept with his family. That little lamb was like a daughter to him. There came a traveler, verse 4, and the rich man desired to be hospitable to the traveler. So instead of taking one of his animals out of his herds or flocks to prepare a meal for this man. Instead, he went to the poor man's house and he took the poor man's only animal, his only lamb that was like a pet to him. And he took it from the poor man and he killed that lamb, cooked that lamb and served that lamb to the stranger. Verse 5, when David heard this story, he was angered greatly. He was in a rage against that man who had done that thing. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord liveth the man that has done this thing, he ought to die, he will die. And then Nathan speaks. David, you are the man. You are the one that is going to have to restore the lamb fourfold, verse 6. You are the one who did this thing and showed no pity. 
story is told of a young couple who just got married. Can you remember your honeymoon night? They just got married. This is their first night together as husband and wife. And they've decided to spend that first night of their honeymoon in the infamous Watergate Hotel. Now, as they're preparing for bed, the bride says to the groom, I wonder if this room is bugged. I wonder if there's a camera that's going to be watching us. I wonder if there's a listening device that's going to be hearing everything we say. You know, President Nixon was known to do that. And this is the place a lot of it took place. I'm telling you, this room could be bugged. Well, the groom says, I don't think it is. That was a long time ago. But I'll be glad to check the room out. So he looks behind the drapes, nothing. Looks behind the pictures, nothing. Looks in the lampshades, nothing. Looks under the bed, nothing. So as he's climbing back into bed, he just casually picks up the carpet that's beside the bed. And lo and behold, there is a box there. Actually, it's a plate. And it's attached to the floor with four bolts. Well, his wife says, I told you this room is bugged. You need to get rid of that plate. It's probably got a listening device in it or even a camera. And so he gets out his Boy Scout knife. He unscrews all four of those screws. He takes that plate, opens up the window, and chunks it out. And then they go to bed. Well, the next day they got up to check out of the Watergate Hotel. And the manager of the hotel come up to them, and he said, can I ask you a few questions? Was your stay in our room okay? Did anything happen that may have upset you? Did you have any problems? Were there any issues? Well, the groom is kind of taken back by all these questions, and he's suspicious too. He says, well, why are you asking me all these questions? And the hotel manager replies, well, there was a couple in a room underneath yours, and they complained about their chandelier falling on them. <laughs> this morning, we're going to be talking about the very first Watergate. It didn't happen under President Nixon, it happened under King David. King David, a man after God's own heart, a man that is in God's hall of fame, one of the greatest men of God who's ever lived, King David. King David has committed a sin. He's committed another sin, which is actually a crime, to cover up that sin. He's also committed more sins to cover up that sin and that crime by deceit and deception and dishonesty. These sins have been committed by King David. These crimes have been committed by King David. And God sends Nathan, the prophet, to address King David personally. 
It's the only place in the Bible that I believe this happened of a prophet of this status. He's not going to speak to the nation. He's not going to speak to the other politicians or the priests. He's not going to speak to the military generals. He's going to speak to one man, and it's King David himself. And this is the story we're going to look at this morning. Now, I don't have to tell you that the Bible's not just a book about the past. It's a book about the present. It's not just a book about what a prophet said to King David. It's what about the Holy Spirit is saying to you and I. And so I pray that he who has ears will listen to what is going to be said and make application. The first thing I want us to see quickly this morning is David's fall. David's fall. If you go back to chapter 11, 2 Samuel, we read just a little bit about the circumstances that were going to lead to David's fall. Now, I want you to pay particularly close attention to verse 1. And it came to pass after the year was expired at the time when kings went forth to battle. When kings went forth to battle. When kings led their armies into battle. That David sent Joab, his general, and his servants to go to battle. He sent them to lead the army of Israel to engage the children of the Ammonites and to beseech Rabbah. But David, but David chose to stay behind in Jerusalem. It came to pass during that time that he was on top of his palace. It was in the evening. And as he was striding, as he was walking, he saw a woman bathing. She was washing herself, it says in verse 2. And the woman was very beautiful to look at. And David sent and inquired after the woman. And he was told it was Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. David sent messengers unto her and said, Bring her to me. And she came, and they had an adulterous affair. Verse 5, From this adulterous affair she conceived, and she sent and told David, I am now with the child. And David sent to Joab, saying, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah back to David from the front lines of battle. Now, can you picture all of this in your mind? It's always good if you can picture what the Bible's saying. David should have been leading the armies of Israel into battle against the Ammonites. He always did that. He was not just a politician, but he was a warrior. He was not just a king, but he was a fighter. David could handle himself on the battlefield, not just strategically, but in his own combat skills. But for whatever reason, David does not choose to do this. He sends Joab. He sends other entrusted leaders to lead the army of Israel against the Ammonites. And he chooses to stay back. 
to stay home, if you will. One night, David, with nothing to do, time on his hands. And by the way, idle time is the devil's workshop. He's out walking on the top of his palace, glancing down at the other houses, the other rooftops that are all around him, because his was the highest, the pinnacle of it all. And as he's doing that, he spots a lady, and she's bathing on her rooftop. Now, that was not unusual in that day. It was quite common, in fact. But David, as he's walking, sees her bathing. And he not only glances at her, but he stares at her. And pretty soon his eyes are engaged at her. And then he starts thinking about what he's seen. He starts having feelings about what he's seen. And he inquires, who is she? Well, he's told that her name is Bathsheba. That she is the wife of Uriah the Hittite, who's serving David on the front lines of battle with the Ammonites. Now, I want you to understand that Uriah wasn't just any soldier. David had 30 mighty men. These were his seals. These were his special forces. These were his green berets. David had 30 men that started with him long before he ever became king. And they took care of David personally as well as in combat. They always had David's back. These 30 mighty men were, were very honorable men. They were courageous men. They were excellent warriors. So David knew who Uriah was. He was one of his 30 mighty men. And when David found out that this beautiful woman that he's been watching and thinking about and having feelings for is the wife of Uriah, you would think that he would have said, she's a married woman, she's the wife of one of my 30 mighty men. I'm not going to pursue this anymore. But he didn't say that. He said, bring her to me. And so his servants went to her home, knocked on her door and said, Bathsheba, the king needs to see you now. You get a message from the king, you go. And she went. And out of that meeting, an adulterous affair took place. And Bathsheba became pregnant. Now what's David going to do? He has got the wife of one of his mighty men pregnant from an adulterous affair that he initiated and probably ordered, to be quite honest with you. What's he going to do? Well, David comes up with a plan. He'll bring Uriah the Hittite back from battle. He'll give Uriah some R&R. And during that R&R, surely he'll be with his wife. And then David can say, well, the pregnancy was Uriah's. He's covered himself. Well, Uriah comes back. But Uriah says, I cannot enjoy my wife's pleasures 
while my other brethren are fighting on the front lines, so he will not do anything with them. He refuses. What's David going to do now? David comes up with another idea. He sends a note to Joab, the general, and he says, what I want you to do when you engage the enemy is I want you to put Uriah on the front lines. I want you to have him lead a group of soldiers to the very front line where the heat of battle is taking place. And then I want you to signal the soldiers that you sent with Uriah to back up, to vacate the position, to leave him alone to fight by himself. Of course, David knew, and so did Joab, that when that occurred, Uriah would be killed. And he was. Now, without Uriah in the picture, David will marry Bathsheba. She will become his wife. And now the pregnancy can be after they were married, not from the adulterous affair. Now, David's a pretty sharp fellow, don't you think? Y'all are thinking people. Don't you think he's pretty smart? Because he looked this way and he said, I got it covered. He looked this way and said, I got it covered. He looked this way and said, I got it covered. He looked this way and said, I got it covered. But he forgot to look one other way, upwards. Because why he got it covered in all those directions, God also was watching. And in verse 27, 2 Samuel chapter 11, I want you to notice what it says. This thing that David has done has angered the Lord. This sin that David has committed, this crime that David had committed, God saw it and it has angered the Lord. Now, I want us to pause for just a moment because I think there's two things that we need to understand. Because some of you are probably saying, I can't imagine David out there just walking around on the rooftop, sees a woman bathing, all of a sudden says, I want her, has adultery with her, then tries to cover up the adultery with murder, then tries to cover up the adultery and murder by marrying Bathsheba. Pastor Howard, could all this happen? It doesn't make any sense to me. It doesn't make any sense unless you understand something. David was already drifting away from God long before this ever occurred. A man doesn't just jump up and commit adultery unless he's already been thinking about it a long time before it ever happens. Somebody doesn't murder somebody just to murder somebody unless they've already had feelings about doing it long before it ever happens. May I submit to you this morning that King David, a man after God's own heart, long before Bathsheba ever came into the picture, long before he had adultery with her, long before he ever murdered her husband Uriah the Hittite, long before he would ever marry her and try to cover all this stuff up, may I suggest to you he was already drifting from God. It was a slow drift. It's always a slow drift. But out to sea he was going. Out to 
see into the carnality he was going. I wonder if David's Bible wasn't dusty. It hadn't been opened in a long time. I wonder if his prayer life was sporadic. He just prayed when he felt like it or needed something from God. I wonder if his worship was tiresome and boring. And every time he went to worship God, he just sat there and watched his watch. I wonder if David's service to the Lord was hit and miss. I wonder if his giving was down. I wonder if worldliness now was more important to him than godliness. I wonder if David wasn't far away from God mentally and emotionally and spiritually long before it ever showed spiritually. I mean physically. Very seldom do people commit major sins and crimes just like that. They've already committed a lot of little sins and crimes already right there. And this is just the pinnacle, the climax of it all. Can I ask you a question? Where are you at right now? Are you drifting out to sea? The Lord's the lighthouse. Are you drifting away from the lighthouse? Are you drifting into the deep, dark abyss of the waters of carnality and crookedness and corruption? Are you? How's your Bible? How's your prayer time? How's your worship? How's your service and giving? What dominates your mind and heart? Worldliness or godliness? Where are you at right now? Are you adrift? David was. I think there's also something else here that we need to look at. When David allowed himself to go adrift from the Lord, two things came into his life that are a two-headed monster, and they will destroy you. Pride came into his life, and lust came into his life. When you have pride in your life, you know what you're going to have with it? Entitlement. I'm sure David said, I'm the king. I have made Israel rich. I have made Israel victorious. I've made Israel the greatest nation in the world. I deserve something for that, do I not? I'm the king. I deserve her if I want her. Entitlement. And then comes with entitlement is pride, and what comes with lust is the midlife crisis. David is going through midlife crisis. Some of you men are right now. Some of you ladies might be. It's a real thing. And I wonder if David, far from the Lord because of his drift, with this mindset of entitlement, I'm the king, I get what I want. I wonder if he wasn't also going through some midlife crisis and he was asking himself, does my mojo still work? She's a young girl, I'm an old man. 
Do I still got it? People get middle age, they their thinking can go askew at times. And I believe this is all going on in David's life as he begins to fall. So I want you to understand when you start drifting from God, you can do anything. I don't think David woke up one morning and said, I'm going to commit adultery, I'm going to commit murder, I'm going to lie, I'm going to cheat, I'm going to cover up. I don't think David one day just woke up and said, I'm the king, I get what I want. Do I still got my mojo? Oh, no. It was a process that took place over a long period of time, and David never saw it. And those who did see it never said nothing to him. You keep that in mind. David never saw it, and those who could see it never said nothing to him. Now that brings us up to the next point. David has fallen. God has not done much with David at this point. God is patient. God is long-suffering. God gives us room, ample time to confess and repent. But David don't want none of that. So in chapter 12, verse 1, the Lord sends Nathan. It says, in the Lord sent Nathan. Nathan didn't just wake up one morning and say, I'm going to go see David. God called Nathan and sent him to the king. And when he came to the king, he said to the king, I've got a story I need to tell you, and I need your advice on how to handle it. The story was of two men who lived in the city. One was rich and the other was poor. Now, up until David gets this knock on the door, David's feeling pretty good about himself. He's high, wide, and handsome, you might say. He's Ric Flair in his glory days. You remember Ric? (laughs) Woo! That's David. He's the man. David's, David's fired up. You know why? The Ammonites have been beaten. They're no longer a threat to his country, to his empire. Bathsheba's his wife. The baby's on the way. Joab, the general, has been promoted and paid off. He's not going to say anything. The cover-up has succeeded. David is thinking to himself, I'm one smart guy. Nobody's ever going to know. The papers, the Jerusalem Gazette, Fox News Israel, they're all saying David's the greatest thing going. David is such a benevolent man. Uriah the Hittite, one of his 30 mighty men, got killed. And David, out of the kindness of his heart, married that poor little widow and given her a child. What a nice guy he is. And on top of that, he gave Uriah a wonderful funeral. Four eulogies, six songs. Wow. Oh, David's David's feeling pretty good right now. 
Your Highness, there is a prophet to see you. A prophet? Yes. He says that he has come with an issue that he needs to talk with you about. He says he believes you know him. His name is Nathan. And he has a word for you, but can he see you? Yep, tell him he can come. I've got just a few minutes. And so Nathan enters the presence of the king. Now I believe David and Nathan know one another to some degree. And they sit down over a cup of coffee. Can you imagine? There's a table here. David's sitting at one side with his coffee. Nathan sits down. He's sipping coffee. Now Nathan's a pretty interesting fellow. First of all, he's courageous because he knows why he's going to see David. David doesn't know why he's coming. But Nathan's smart enough to know that if he says something that upsets David, David could have him killed. After all, he's already a what? Murderer. If David would murder Uriah the Hittite, David might would murder Nathan the prophet. So it took a great deal of courage to go and sit down in front of David and tell him what you're about to tell him. But prophets were courageous men. I don't know what your view of prophet is, but I'm telling you they were a man's man. And by the way, Jesus was a man's man. He wasn't no soft, effeminate little Mr. Militos. And neither was Nathan. He was a courageous prophet. Also, he was diplomatic. He wasn't a holler and a screamer. He was a soft-spoken man who understood diplomacy. He knew how to talk with people in such a way that he wasn't offensive, though what he said might be offensive. He was a gentleman. He was also compassionate. Because I believe what he's about to tell David is going to bring tears to his eyes. When's the last time you've ever cried? I believe Nathan cried that day. As he says a story to David. He says, David, I, I got an issue here. I need your help. There's two men. One was a poor man, David. He only had one lamb, one little lamb. It was a pet lamb. He raised the lamb from birth. He treated the lamb like he would treat one of his children. In fact, he didn't have any daughters. And so he made that little female lamb his daughter. He fed her from the table that he ate from. He allowed her to drink from the, from the well that his family drank from. She had her own little bed. He would hold her. He would love her. She was one of the family. And there was a rich man, David. He had hundreds of thousands of lambs and sheep. Hundreds of thousands. He had herds of cattle. He had herds of oxen. He had herds of camels. David, he had everything a man would want in that regard. And, a, and he gets a visit from somebody. And he decides he's going to fix a meal for this visitor. But instead of going out and getting one of his sheep or one of his lambs or one of his steers or one of his camels, he sends his henchmen, his cronies, to the poor man's house and they grab the little lamb. 
and they carry that little lamb off and they cut that little lamb's throat and they bleed that little lamb, cook that little lamb, and feed that little lamb to that stranger. What should I do? The Bible says David got angry. That's an interesting word that's used there. It doesn't mean he just got... I can imagine he stood up at that table. I can imagine he pounded the table. I can imagine he threw his coffee cup over to the side. He said, what kind of scoundrel would do that? What kind of jerk would do that? He needs to die. I'm going to order him put to death. And he's going to pay fourfold back to this poor man what he's done before I kill him. Do you know his name, Nathan? Do you know the name of this scoundrel, this jerk? Do you know his name? And I, I hope we can see this one day in heaven. Nathan looks at David and says, I do know him, your highness. You're the man. The sound of silence. It was quiet, but you could hear the drop of that shoe around the world. David, it's you. You are the man. You have hundreds of wives, David. Uriah had only one. You could have chosen any one of your beautiful wives. You've got hundreds of them. But you chose to take Uriah's wife, the only wife he had, the pride and joy of his life, everything. She was everything to him. And you take her. And you murder him. And then you have the audacity to give him a funeral that you took his life from. And to take his wife and receive honor for what you've done. David, you're the man. And God is going to take your life just as you said. David, you have, you have announced your own penalty. You will die. And the fourfold payback is going to begin right now. David, that baby that you and Bathsheba have coming, that baby is going to die. Your home is going to be filled with violence from this day forward. Your home will become a battlefield. David, you will have a son, and he will come, and he will hijack your kingdom from you. He will rebel against you. And David, every one of your wives, they are going to be raped in the public square by your son to bring dishonor and shame to you. Wow. 
David's sin has found him out, hasn't it? Now you say, wait a minute, Pastor. The baby did die. You're correct, that baby would die. And by the way, when babies die, they go to heaven. All these aborted babies in America, they're in heaven right now. They're doing fine. God helped those who killed them and the Supreme Court who passed it and allowed it. But that's another sermon for another day, but that baby's in heaven. But the baby did die. And violence would come to David's household. For the rest of David's life, his family would be dysfunctional and his household would be filled with infighting and violence. And just as the prophet said, Absalom, David's son, would challenge him for the kingdom one day and actually take it from his father. And Absalom would get all of David's wives and bring them to the center court of the city and there he would publicly rape every one of them. So what the prophet said happened except for one thing. God didn't take David's life. Now, you might be asking the question, why did God allow David to live? God said he was going to take David's life. Because of David's prayer in Psalm 51. I want you to turn in your Bibles very quickly because time is running out. But I want you to see the prayer that saved David's life. God would have killed David. But David... And Psalm 51 prayed one of the greatest prayers that any human being has ever uttered. It was a prayer that touched the heart of God, a God who would rather forgive than judge, a God who would rather give a fresh start and a new beginning than to take away our old life. And in Psalm 51, David prays for his life. This is the prayer that David prayed after Nathan speaks to him about the consequences of his sin and crime. In verse 1 of Psalm 51, David makes an appeal to God. He begins by praising God. Praising God for who He is. He says, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to Thy loving kindness. According to the multitude of Thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. David says, God, I know You're a God of grace. I know You're a God of mercy. You're a God of loving kindness. You're a God who's been good to me. God, I praise you for who you are, and I ask that you be that once again to me right now. And then he goes to confession. He appeals to God's character. Then he goes to confession in verse 3 and 4. For I acknowledge my transgressions. Notice it's plural. There were a lot of them. And my sin is ever before me. Against you, Lord, and only you have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. We're very good at confessing other people's sins. Would you not agree? <laughs> if I asked you to confess the sins of the person next to you, you could do a pretty good job of it, I'm sure. But David confesses his own sin. He says, Lord, I did it. I thought what I thought. I felt what I felt. I said what I said. I did what I did. Lord, I have no defense. 
I have no alibi. I have no excuse. I have no one to blame. The devil didn't make me do it. The world didn't make me do it. Bathsheba didn't make me do it. Uriah didn't make me do it. Joab didn't make me do it. Lord, I did it because I wanted to do it. I'm, I'm guilty, Lord. I'm guilty. He confesses. That's what confession is. I'm guilty. I take full responsibility. And then notice thirdly in this prayer, he pleads for his life in verses 10 through 12. David pleads for his life. He says, God, I know you're a God of, of fresh starts. I know you're a God of new beginnings. God, change me. Give me a chance to start all over again. Don't kill me, Lord. Create in me a clean heart, God. Renew my right spirit. Cast me not away from thy presence. Do not take away your Holy Spirit. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. Lord, give me another chance. And Lord, if you'll do it in verse 17, or excuse me, verse 13. Lord, I'm not trying to make a deal with you, but if you give me a chance, one more chance, Lord, I promise that I'll testify of you everywhere I go. I'll tell others what you've done for me. Verse 13, I will teach transgressors their ways, and sinners shall be converted unto you. And in verse 17, he concludes his prayer by saying, Lord, I'm sorry. A contrite, broken heart. Lord, I'm not just sorry I got caught. I'm sorry that I ever did any of this. I'm sorry. And when you and I pray like that, God is moved. And God was moved toward David, and God spared David's life. But he didn't take away the consequences of the other things that were going to occur. I want you to understand in closing, time's running out, that your sin will find you out. Because some of you perhaps are sitting here like David was before the knock came at the door. Maybe some of you right now are saying, Nobody will ever know what I'm doing. I've got all the bases checked. Oh, really? Maybe there's one you need to check again. Because God knows. And God in his own time is going to deal with you. You say he hasn't dealt with me left. He will. He will. Nobody gets away with nothing. Not David, not you, not me. God takes sin serious. Your sin will find you out. What's done in the dark will come to the light. What's done in private will become public. What's done in your home will be shouted into the streets one day. It will catch up with you. And God will bring judgment against you. And that judgment will bring ruination to you. Oh yes, you can be forgiven. But the consequences of what you've done will be forever. The consequences will be forever. The 
story is told in closing of a man who needed a pipe wrench to fix a pipe at his house. He didn't have one. If he didn't get a pipe wrench, he'd have to drive 40 miles to town. He didn't want to drive 40 miles to town, so he went next door to his neighbor. He said, would you happen to have a pipe wrench? I've got a project and I need one. Could I borrow yours? The neighbor said, you sure can. <laughs> but there is a problem. It's in my garage. The man said, well, that's not a problem. I can go to the garage and get it. The man said, well, you need to go to the garage first, and then you'll see there's a problem. So the man who was going to borrow the pipe wrench goes into his friend's garage, and sure enough, goodness gracious, it was a pigsty. I mean, it was a garbage dump. It looked like a hoarder of hoarders had lived there. I mean, there was it was stuffed with stuff all the way up to the ceiling, all the way to the left, all the way to the right. It was packed with garbage, junk, a mess. There was no structure. There was no order. It was just a big mess. It was filthy. It was nasty. It was moldy. But the man needed a pipe wrench. So after two hours of going through that mess, he finds the pipe wrench, goes home, fixes his pipe, and he's having a conversation with his wife, and he said, you know, I can't believe our next-door neighbor. What a messy garage. It is, it is the dirtiest, nastiest room I have ever seen in all my years. And his wife says, well, it may be. But can I ask you a question? She says, sure. What about our attic? Haven't you, aren't you supposed to clean that mess up? And what about our basement? And what about our shed? Those things are, have no structure. They have no order. They're messy. They're nasty. They're mildewy. They're damp. They're a breeding ground for roaches and rats and everything else. When are you going to clean up your mess? And you know, that's a good question, isn't it? When are you and I going to clean up our mess? I know the guy sitting next to you or the lady sitting next to you, they got a big mess, don't they? But maybe it's time we clean up our own backyard before we start worrying about somebody else. prophet Nathan is not here, but the Spirit of God is. My finger's short, but the Spirit of God's finger's long. And when the Spirit of God is in the house and He's talking, He's touching you. And He's saying, when are you going to clean up your mess? When are you going to confess your sins? When are you going to deal with what you've done? Because if you don't, God will. Heads are bowed in my